All right, so we are on lesson eight, page 46. We are beginning part one of the lesson, uh, The Christian Life. So we just finished up the plan of salvation, how it is that we come to faith in Christ. And now we begin uh, our discussion on what it means to live as a believer. How are we to live as believers? Um, how are we to live this Christian life? And there's two two parts to this. So lesson eight and lesson nine will both be on the Christian life. Um, and I believe that for this lesson, lesson eight will take uh, two weeks to get it done. Um <clears throat> And so uh, today we are going to focus on the Christian and the moral law. Uh, so before we get started, Richard, can I get you to pray for us? So, uh, really quickly, what is the moral law? We're going to talk about the Christian and the moral law. What is the moral law? Is that the Ten Commandments somewhere? Okay. So, the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Okay. Uh, so we do talk of the law in general. Um, it's divided into three parts. First is being the moral law, I think. And then the second is the ceremonial law. Um, and then you have also the laws that were given to Israel as a nation that are specific to them. So it's not necessarily the moral law, but it's how they live. Okay, so we got the threefold division of the laws, civil, ceremonial, and moral. And so we're looking at the moral law, which Charlie uh, said is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Um, what is unique about the moral law that is different from the civil law or the ceremonial law? It applies to us. Okay, it applies to us. Um, what else? The ceremonial law kind of 
cake. So the ceremonial law, it, it was it pointed towards Christ and what he would do. It was a shadow of what was to come, uh, as we see in the book of Hebrews. The moral law uh, is, as Matt said, it's for us. And it's not just for us, it's for all people at all times and all places. And that's different from the civil law and the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was just for those who were part of the Jewish religion uh, under the old covenant. And so it only applied to them in their ceremonial practices. The civil law was only to the nation of Israel as a body politic, uh, so as a country, as a nation, and was specific to that time in which it was given and under uh, that time period in which they were a people, a nation, and so they were to obey the civil law of God. But the moral law is not for a specific people at a specific time or in a specific place. The moral law is for all people in all times and in all places. And that's because it's rooted in the very character, in the very being of who God is. Um, and because God is the God of all things, of all people in all places, in all ages, and because his moral character does not change or does not uh, differentiate between one people or another, his moral law does not either. And that it's forever, it's for all people and for all times. And we see that moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. The law was given to display God's holiness and to bring man under conviction of sin as he views himself in light of God's righteous demands. And so we look at Romans chapter 7 and verse 12. We see, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. And so we see the law is described as holy, as, as exhibiting a characteristic of God himself. Holiness, justice, goodness, uh, those are characteristics of God and his law, his commandments uh, are said to be those things as well because they flow from who he is. Uh, can someone read Romans 3 and verse 20? And then someone else get ready with Galatians 3 and verse 24. Romans 3, 20. Okay, I got it. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, All right, so what does Paul say that the law gives us here? The knowledge of sin. The knowledge of sin. 
that, that the law reveals to us uh, how sinful we are. In Galatians three twenty four. All right, so uh, Richard's translation said that the law was our guardian. Other translations say the law was our schoolmaster. So what does the law as schoolmaster or as guardian uh, do? What does the law as in that role as schoolmaster, what does it do? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think in verses like uh, where uh, it says that you know God would put His law into our hearts, and I don't know if this applies, but it, is that kind of the, what we're seeing here? Is you know, now now that we have Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. We're in union with Christ, and so now that His law is written on our hearts. Yeah. So we see that the the moral law of God is written on our hearts. Uh, in that it acts as a schoolmaster to instruct us, to mentor us, to guide us, to direct us in the ways that we should go. Um, And that's by the Spirit working in us because it's the Spirit that applies the law to us in a way that that it can direct us. Um, it's the spirit working through these things, but uh, yes, we as believers have the law of God written on our hearts, and the spirit uses that to draw us uh, in the path that we should go to lead us in the way everlasting. Uh, but all people have uh, the law written on their hearts. All people have an innate understanding of the moral law of God. And even to them, it acts as a schoolmaster. Without the Spirit directly applying them to lead them in the way everlasting, it still is used by them as a guide to restrain evil, um, both personally and civilly. Uh, and that's, that's what theologians refer to as natural law, that men naturally understand these moral principles, and it is because God has already given, them, given it to them, and it is ingrained within them. Uh, that's why you see virtually every culture on earth has a penalty for killing someone. You can't just murder someone in any country, 
uh, virtually every country has some sort of penalty, uh, or at one point did, uh, has some sort of penalty against adultery. Uh, now, it may be that in our wickedness, like what we see in America, we've done away with that penalty. Or in, in, in their wickedness, like we see in some countries, they don't even view adultery as a thing. And so they have these polygamous relationships. But, you know, that it, any, when you see these things, these moral principles, by and large, crossing all cultures, that's evidence that the moral law of God is written on our hearts, everyone's heart, uh, and that the law of nature testifies to the law of God, to the moral law of God. Um, and there are going to be some that say, yeah, that applies. That's true of the second table of the law, that the second table of the law is what is natural for all people in all places and that that's what you can see across all cultures and that's just not true it's for the first table of the law as well it's not just commandments 5 through 10 that we see being universally instructed throughout all of the world we see 1 through 4 as well just in perverted ways Corrupted by their sinful way, by their sinful actions, their sinful religions, their false religions. Uh, you go to, you go to Saudi Arabia, and you speak out against Allah and Muhammad, and see if you don't get charged with blasphemy and beheaded. And that's because they are applying the first table of the law. They're applying the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. They're, they're, they're applying the third commandment, uh, do not take the Lord, name of the Lord your God in vain. They're taking those commandments, those moral laws, and applying them in their society only in their perverted and false religion. And you see that all across the world. Up until the Enlightenment, blasphemy laws were commonplace in every nation, in every country. If you blasphemed their religion, you would be executed. And that's because every person understood this moral principle. Now, they applied it outside of the Christian context that the Lord gave it to us. They applied it to their false religions. But we see all across the world, if you worship false gods that are not approved by the, the nation, by the government, if you worship in ways that, is not, that are not approved by the government, if you blaspheme and speak ill against the gods that are approved by the government, and if you don't worship on the day that's appointed for you to worship by the government, then there are going to be repercussions. 
And we see that in all nations uh, throughout the world at various times. And that is because they, they know these principles. They know these moral precepts. But they have turned away from Jehovah and created their false gods. And they're applying these moral principles to their false gods and their false religions. So even in those situations, the moral law that is written on their heart is teaching them that these principles should be in place. It's acting as a schoolmaster in that way and in, in instructing them, but they are applying them in the wrong way. And that's because they don't have the guidance of the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit working the law in their hearts and out through good moral actions. Um, and so that's, that's an understanding of how the moral law and natural law are essentially the same thing. And, and we can say uh, that just an observation of these different cultures shows us the universal nature of the moral law of God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's, that's why when we're looking in the civil realm and when we're looking in the spiritual realm, a removal of law wholesale is so wicked. That's why anarchy is so wrong. Anarchy leads to unrestrained evil and it so it, it in and of itself is evil um, and there's you know me saying that is, is going to make some internet reformed guys mad because there's this there's this strain running through reformed circles online where embracing anarchism is the new cool thing to do um and it's an overreaction to what we're seeing in our government with governmental overreach. 
And honestly, you know, just so I can come clean, I fell into that. I fell into this whole anarchy mindset of thinking that was the best route to go. But ultimately, it just, it leads to evil. It leads to unrestrained evil. Um, And we have to understand that both government and laws uh, are given to us uh, for good purposes, one of which is the restraining of evil. And then, so that's the civil side. And then you look at the spiritual side, and this explains why antinomianism is such a wicked, evil thing. And antinomianism is running rampant throughout the American evangelical church. People who think that the law does not apply to them. And at, in, thankfully, most antinomians are inconsistent antinomians. They'll say they don't believe that the law applies to them, that they're not under law, they're under grace, and they'll at least self-restrain evil. Uh, so they're inconsistent. But you have other antinomians who are espousing this and who actually have platforms, and I'm going to name drop because I don't care, Tully Intervision, I don't know if you know who he is, Billy Graham's grandson, very well-known guy in reform circles about 10, 15 years ago, former PCA pastor, began embracing antinomianism, began teaching antinomianism. Eventually, it came out that he had a mistress on the side. Why? Because he's under law. He's not under law. He's under grace. It's not that big of a deal. That's wickedness. And that's what, if we remove these laws from our society and from our spiritual, personal walks with God, that's what we end up with is wickedness. It's evil. Uh, And so we have to recognize and understand the proper place that the law holds in our lives. Um, This is talking about the Christian life. And yes, there is, there is an added obligation upon Christians to obey uh, the moral law because we have greater knowledge of it. Uh, and so there is a higher expectation, a higher obligation that's placed on Christians. But obedience to the moral law of God is not simply what's required of the Christian life. Obedience to the moral law of God is what's required of the human life. And we have to understand that. And if we, if we understand that, and if that's our basis, if that's what we're operating from, then as we continue along, as we continue throughout this uh, book about doctrine and about how we apply it to our lives, when we get to the church, things will make more sense. When we get to the civil magistrate, things will make more sense. When we get to all these different things, it makes more sense because we're operating from an understanding that we have an obligation to obey whatever the Lord commands. Yeah, there's some biblical examples. You have uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. You have the, the earth before, before the flood. I don't know what that was like, but it sounded bad. Mm-hmm. 
also had uh, the Canaanites. You know, it's like uh, in, I think it was Abraham's time, God said that they had not, their, their sin had not reached its limit yet. Yeah. But then uh, apparently when Moses came along, they had. So they, their command was to wipe them out completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say another example would be the Israelites themselves uh, when there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Wickedness just ran rampant throughout Israel and the judges came in and they would clean up shop and then eventually the monarchy was established. But then you look at the divided kingdom. What did, what did Jeroboam do in the north? He just completely did away with everything God said. He brought in the the gods of his wife, uh, his wives. He set up these altars. He set up these high places. He let people just do whatever they wanted to. There, were, the moral law of God did not govern the northern kingdom of Israel from its beginning all the way to its destruction by Assyria. They completely forsook the moral law of God. And if you read the northern uh, kingdom prophets who are crying out and calling out against these things, uh, you think of Ezekiel. um, What do they always go back to? The law of God. Remember the statutes. Remember the commandments of the Lord. Remember His law. That's what he's, they're always pointing Israel, the northern kingdom, back to. Because that is what they had forgotten. That's what they had done away with. Um, and so, you know, we have these biblical examples. We have, we have our own examples in our modern society. Praise God that we haven't completely done away with all laws that are based upon the moral law of God. But when you're allowing children to be murdered in the womb, when you're allowing homosexuals to uh, just get married and, and live about as though it's normal in society, when you're allowing... Uh, men to mutilate their bodies in order to claim that they're women or women mutilate their bodies and claim that they're men. Uh, when you have, when you, you know, drive down the street on the Lord's day on your way to church and every shop is open as though it's a Monday morning, Have we not given up much of the moral law of God? Now, my fear for the state, present state that we're in today as America is we're where the Canaanites were. That the Lord is not finished giving us over to our own destruction, letting our evil reach its potential. That's my fear. My hope is that 
we will be like Nineveh, who was gravely wicked, and yet heard the voice of the prophet Jonah, and repented, and turned unto the Lord as a nation, or as a political body. Now, obviously that didn't last because Assyria, where Nineveh was, increased in wickedness and eventually took over Israel. But for some period of time, Nineveh repented of their sins. So, I mean, whether or not we've been given over to uh, a depraved mind, as we see in Romans chapter 1, and uh, the Lord is just allowing our nation to just continue hardening itself until uh, the fullness has come and our destruction is imminent. Or he is working up a, a people who will call uh, this nation to repentance and, and true, not in true revival breaks out and I'm not talking about revival like what we saw at Asbury University where people were just going off an emotional high talking about true revival where there's true repentance on a grand scale whichever one of those two scenarios God is working out it's going to be perfect and we have to submit to it uh but both of those scenarios recognize that we as a nation have completely, almost completely forsook the moral law of God. There is so much for us as America to repent of because of that. All right. Um, I want to try to get through... I'm not going to get through all of it. Let's get through this next section, uh, and then we'll pick up at the bottom of 47 next time. So, a man is unable to earn his salvation by keeping the law perfectly because of his sinful nature. Uh, Now we're getting into motivations behind keeping the law of God. It is not to earn salvation. Uh, I'll read James 2.10. Durley, can you read Romans 3.20? Richard, Romans 3.24. And uh, Charlie, Romans 6.14 and 15. All right, so James 2.10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of it all. So here we see that unless, unless you keep every single aspect of the law, that includes everything that is commanded, everything that is forbidden, every facet of it 
unless you keep every facet of every one of the laws perfectly, then it's just as though you had broken all of them. Come on in. Welcome. We're just finishing up. Yeah, yeah. We're finishing up our uh, Sunday school. Uh, so Romans 3.20 All right, so what cannot be gained by obedience to the law? Justification. Justification. We cannot be justified in his sight because of the deeds of the law. So that means that even perfectly keeping the law of God cannot earn you salvation. Romans 3.24 And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Alright, so what are you justified through? What's the only means of justification? Redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You're not justified through your works of the law, as we just saw in 3.20. No, you are justified through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 6.14 and 15. For sin shall not have dominion ye are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Alright. So we are not under law in our condition. We are under grace. But that does not mean that we sin so that grace would abound. And what is sin? We just had that in our children's catechism. Uh, and it's the same in our shorter catechism. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So should we transgress the law of God in order that his grace would abound all the more. No. Just because we're under grace doesn't mean that we break and violate and transgress the law of God. When Paul, uh, there's this note in your workbook, when Paul states that, believe, that the believer is no longer under the law, but under grace, he does not mean that the believer has no responsibility to keep the law. What he is stating is that the believer's ground of salvation is not works carrying out the law, but faith in the righteousness of Christ 
as that gift of God's grace which justifies him in God's sight. The believer is now called to keep God's law out of a gratitude for his salvation. If every person on this earth is commanded to keep the moral law of God. And every Christian who has been redeemed by Christ, who has been uh, brought out of sin and into eternal life, all who have been uh, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, have an obligation to continue to obey the moral law of God, not in order to achieve salvation, not in order to maintain salvation, but out of a sense of gratitude because of the good work that the Lord has done in you, you now commit yourself to obedience to Him and love for Him. And Christ says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Charlie? So what would the antinomians view about these two verses say? How how would they argue their view? How would they... This seems to explain what's wrong. They They have a false notion of what sin is. Um, and so they would say, yeah, we're under grace. We're not under the law anymore. Should we sin so that grace would abound? No, but, but because we are saved, because we are under grace, we can't sin anymore because we're not under the law. Because it's the sin that, it's, it's, it's the law that brings out about knowledge of sin. So they would say, if you've been freed, if you are freed from being under the law and you are under grace, then you can't sin. Because they would say that knowledge of sin only comes from being under the law. That's how they would explain it away, which is absolutely absurd. Absolutely absurd. And absolutely contradicts what the Apostle John writes in 1 John that if anyone says that they are without sin, let them be accursed. Or that they are a liar. Um, If anyone says that they are without sin, they are a liar, and the truth is not in them. Um, It seems like two good verses to discuss with an antinomian. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Uh, there, there's also the issue of Adam, how he was under the covenant of works, uh, and that if he were to perfectly obey it, he would receive eternal life. Uh, and that way, many people seem to relate to the law in that way, that if they obey, they'll receive life. Uh, and these verses show that 
Yeah, and, and this goes back to what we talked about several weeks ago, even a couple of months ago, when we first started the section on the plan of salvation, which is man's total depravity, and, and looking at original sin, inherited original sin from Adam that all men have. Um, all men, all people, are conceived in sin, are born in sin, have a sin nature from the very beginning. And even that original sin, in and of itself, is enough to condemn one to hell. Um, and so, when we're looking at keeping the law of God as a means of achieving eternal life, it's impossible, not only because you can't perfectly keep the moral law of God in all of its aspects and all of its ways, but it's impossible because every person has a sin nature that has corrupted every part of their body, and so even everything that they do is tainted by sin. And so it can't be kept perfectly. And so it all goes back to that. And why was Adam placed in this covenant of works and able to achieve life if he perfectly obeyed? Because he did not have a sin nature. He was able to perfectly obey. But he didn't, and he fell, and so did all of his posterity, which means that we've all inherited a sin nature and cannot perfectly keep this. We are still bound by the covenant of works, by the way. The covenant of works, we are still obligated to uphold. But Christ, as our mediator, fulfills the covenant of works for us. And why is he, he able to do it? Yes, it's because he's God. But he's also able to keep that moral law perfectly because he had no sin nature. Nothing to taint his good works. And so he did fulfill that moral law perfectly. And that is why we are able to achieve eternal life not because we keep the moral law but because of the covenant of grace which was instituted with Christ and all of his elect if we are in him then we too uh, are, are viewed are reckoned as justified before God and just as Christ kept the covenant of works, if we are in him, it is viewed as though we have done so as well. And we are granted then to eat of the tree of life in the new Jerusalem, which the tree of life is Christ himself, who is the giver of the eternal life. All right. Sorry we went over on time uh, we will pick up at the bottom of page 47 in two weeks 
uh, and we will continue on. Matt, can I get you to close us in prayer? Yeah.